from our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to It's All Political, the Chronicle's politics podcast. Today's guest is Steve Hilton, who I met at the his offices at Crowdpack, which is a tech company in San Francisco, to talk about his new show that he has on Fox. Now, wait a minute. Wait. A, a, a tech guy from San Francisco has a show on Fox? What the hell? I'm Joe Garfoli, and this is It's All Political. <laughs> Hilton. And Steve is going to be hosting a new show that debuts Sunday, June 4th on Fox called The Next Revolution. Yeah, I think and technically it's very important that we say The Next Revolution with Steve Hilton. I think there oh, is okay. a very important legal yeah. and copyright oh, all right, all right. to say that. The Next Revolution with Steve Hilton. Yeah. And we're here to find out, we're in San Francisco at the uh, offices of CrowdPack, where you're the CEO. And... Uh, how does a tech CEO from San Francisco, a guy who wears a T-shirt on TV, get to be the host of a show on Fox? This is a, and tell us what it's about. Well, I think first of all, I, I think you should assume that I'm as surprised as you are. Yeah. Um, but we'll we'll see how it goes. I think, funny enough, there is there's a there's a connection, which is um, something I've long uh, been aware of, even when when um, I was working in politics and government back in the UK many years ago, and certainly. Here, which is that our political system, our, the institutions of politics, the way politics work, it's all just completely broken. I think the party system is broken, the way the party system tries to sort of label people and put them in boxes, and so that, that just makes no sense to, to lots of people. I think what you've seen happen here in America, uh, particularly in the election last year, with, with the rise of populist candidates, not just uh, Donald Trump, but Bernie Sanders, who in, in, in a way preceded Trump in, in, in showing how much um, desire there was for something really sort of fundamental to change. I think that all is what um, I want to address on the show. Like, what is this populism? Where does it come from? What's it being caused by? How come you're seeing people on the left and on the right agree about a certain set of things like the, to use the language of Bernie Sanders, you know, the rigged system. The, 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 the language of both of them, larger, but, you know, like how come you've got that interesting overlap of, of, of candidates from left and right, um, and you know what's that all about? But most importantly, what can we do about it? What, and since we now we've had that kind of spotlight shone on the fact that there are so many people with real, real tough lives who have been let down for so long by policies implemented by again by governments of the left and the right, by administrations from you know, over the last few decades. What can we do about that? What are the practical solutions? So that if there's one phrase that sums up what I'm trying to do with the, with the show on Fox, is this notion of positive populism. Let's understand what drives this kind of populist uprising, but then let's turn that energy in a positive direction towards real reforms and real changes that actually improve people's lives, that actually help them get jobs, that, that if they're in work, help them raise their incomes, that improve their schools, all those kind of practical things that I think we often are overlooked in these kind of generalized discussions that we have in politics. And I think that the party system does a really poor job of addressing. And I, just to bring it back to your 
opening question, that, that's actually the connection with Crowdpack, because the, the whole point of Crowdpack as a business, the reason I started the company, was also to try and deal with this really big failing that's at the heart of so much that's gone wrong with politics and with government, which is that the whole system, the whole political system is broken and corrupt. We all know this, everyone knows this, it's owned and controlled by insiders, by big donors, whether on the left and the right, it's all the same. That's what that's the reason so many people are put off running for office in the first place, because they think the whole thing is just you know controlled by the insiders. And then the people who do run for office, even if they start with really good intentions, they're completely trapped by the institutions, by the structures, by the need to raise money, by the need to do what their donors want. And that's what we're trying to break at Crowdpack. So in a way, it's the same, uh, it's, it's sort of different, different um, kind of uh, aspects of the same issue, which is that these really, really big problems that are really hurting people have just been completely, uh, the, the political system has just totally failed to deal with them. And we need a big change. And that's actually one of the reasons I think the show's called The Next Revolution, because I think that the scale of change we need is revolutionary. Um, Bernie Sanders talked about a political revolution. I've really related to that, to that message. I think that we need much bigger change than a few different policies here or there. We need just complete change in the structures and systems of politics. And you describe your politics as a mix of Bernie Sanders, <clears throat> Rand Paul, yeah. and John Kasich. You, well, I, tell you, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily sort of stick. I tell you what. I wrote that, and I, I uh, wrote a book which was published in the UK in 2015 and then the US edition was published last year, 2016. And the book's called More Human, Designing a World Where People Come First. And the in the introduction to the book, I rewrote a lot, lots of it for, uh, for the American edition, obviously to reflect right. real you know issues in America and the differences in, in circumstance. But also I rewrote the introduction for an audience that had no idea who I was in the UK, I by the end of my time, that was pretty well known. You're, you're kind, of a, of, kind of the uh, like a political consultant on the order of, um, I mean, Karl Rove is like a, in terms of sort of being a political strategist, you also sort of the head of domestic policy under David Cameron's yeah. administration. So you're sort of a combination of a, uh, a political strategist, but also someone who actually does policy. That's right. Well, once, once, once I worked for David Cameron in 10 Downing Street, I really focused on implementing mm -hmm. the kind of domestic reform program that, right. that we ran on. But, but obviously, an American audience had never heard who is right. this guy, you know. Yes. And so I was just trying to capture. Well, even know who David Cameron is. But the thing is that there was, it was, remember, I was writing that, that or rewriting that introduction to the book right at the beginning of the presidential election. That's what everyone was starting to sort of think about. So I was just trying to capture. Like, for the people to think, who is this guy, and where, where, where does he sit? Right. In my sort of, you know, political, in the, on the political. Well, translate spectrum. that for us. In American well, I was trying to capture terms. it, and so I was trying to kind of be practical about it. So I, I think that terms like independent, or which I think of myself as, or independent-minded, or uh, you know, even even when you start getting into the labels like whether conservative, libertarian, progressive, all these labels, you know, in the end, I think that. They, they do suit a lot of the real insiders, the people who are really kind of obsessed about politics and, 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 and that's what they spend their time doing. They, they're kind of comfortable with those labels. But I think most people aren't. Most people are kind of a more interesting mix of different points of view on different issues. Yeah. And that's what I was trying to convey there and saying, well, actually, when I look at the field of whoever at that time was a declared 
presidential candidate when I happened to be writing this, I think the beginning of 2015, I thought, well, actually, I love Bernie Sanders' message, not necessarily in agreement with all of his policy recommendations, but completely agree with, with his characterization of what's gone wrong, as, as I would say the same about Elizabeth Warren. Um, I actually really like, liked at the time, still do, you know, Rand Paul's uh, instincts on the growth of the surveillance state and, and all of that. Um, I loved his the way he would talk about that and argue about that. Again, don't necessarily agree with him on on economic policy, on, on some of his social positions. He's pretty liberal on... on yes. more on, of a, he's on, more of a libertarian. Yeah, so again, I don't, I don't like the term libertarian, I, because oh, I don't. Mean, for example, I'm, that's why I'm talking about this interesting mixture you know, on, of, of views that I think a lot of people have. I, I wouldn't want to accept the label libertarian because actually I feel that in certain areas of policy, what we need is really quite... Uh, strong state intervention, government intervention. Like where? Where would you see that? Well, and actually another example um, would be in the area of family policy. So my conclusion of working for many, many years on questions of poverty and inequality and, and crime and, and welfare and, just, and, and, and educational performance and schools and all of those things that we, you could sort of loosely bracket under the heading of, of domestic policy. I think wh where I got to was that there's one policy area that underpins all of that that is woefully underemphasized in government and in political conversations, and that is family. What happens in families, how children are raised, I think that is the foundational question for a lot of the things we want to see happen in terms of, of, of a, a more you know, just and fair and opportunity-based society. And so I think that there's a really strong case for government to think about and get involved in family policy. So libertarians run a mile from that. When you and say so get involved in family policy, well, programs that's, that's, that's going to raise intervention to support families. You know, for example, there's this assumption that um, that you know parents have kids and then they'll know how to you know deal with that situation. Actually, my experience of working with families, particularly where you've had real problems where kids have, have ended up. You know, going off the rails where the families ended up, for whatever reason, often through no fault of their own, um, in, a, in, a, in a really you know dysfunctional state. It's like no one's sat down and said, "Well, th these are the basics of how you raise raise a child." There's this assumption that everyone knows how to do it. I don't think that's true. And therefore, there's a, now rich rich parents access. You know, they 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 buy materials and they can access. They have nannies and they you know all this kind of stuff. But but for regular working people, um, often it would it's really helpful to have advice on how to be a parent. Now, even saying that drives some people completely crazy. Oh, that's the nanny state. That's it's completely. If, you, if we want to solve problems like poverty and inequality, you've got to get involved in that area of policy. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have some you know heavy-handed government program that goes round to every parent and tells them what to do. No, but there are creative ways of addressing that issue. That in, in, in modern, interesting ways, often using technology and just thinking about the role of government in a different way, where you can really help people. And there's a role for government there. Libertarians would reject that. So I definitely wouldn't accept that label. And the other person um, that I mentioned, in, that, that you, you reminded me I mentioned in that list, was John Kasich, who I always thought, still do, was a really attractive candidate and, and, and politician in his... Um, actually, I think you know the, the title of my book was More Human. Um, designing a world where people come first, and that emphasis on, on a humanity, I think, is something that really comes through 
from the way John Kasich approaches He spoke politics. about drug addiction, about mental health issues in a way that a lot of presidential candidates did, yeah. but uh, that wasn't his reputation always in Washington. Well, it's funny. I mean, we, we were just talking about this, actually. I, um, I'd read about John Kasich. I'd read about um, what he'd achieved in Ohio, and I was just interested in him, but I'd never seen him. I'd never actually seen him speak. And I remember watching it. Re it really stuck in my mind. It was very striking, actually, what, seeing him for the first time interviewed. My, my first, uh, the first time I saw him speak was in an interview, which I remember to this day, weirdly, given the amount of, uh, you know, inter the number of yeah, interviews. Really, I, know, I can't think years. of any interviews. I know, exactly. Even very, my own. It's very weird, but I do remember this one. Um, it's very striking. It must have been, I don't know, beginning of 2015, something like that, before he declared as candidate for president. And he was interviewed by Gloria Borgia on CNN. I really remember it. I just thought, wow, this guy's really interesting. He's got this really interesting combination of um, kind of strength and authority, which people look for in their political leaders, but, uh, but humanity, just the way he talks about issues. There's something there that's really different mm -hmm. to most of these politicians that, that end up talking like robots in this incredibly pompous yeah. way. Um, there's something really human about him. And so that's why I sort of <laughs> put him on that list of... You know, like, like, think, like, for an audience, think, well, who is this guy? I'm talking about me now. And where, where am I coming right. from? It's this kind of weird combination of a bit of Bernie Sanders, a bit of Rand Paul, a bit of John Kasich. But in the end, you know, I, I don't particularly like being tied to any of those because that, that's the reason I wrote the book. Because I, well, this is what I think. Here are, here are my ideas, and that was. And so Trump ran into doing this as a as a populist. Um, his approval ratings, as we know, are, are down. Uh, but his base of supporters is still with him for the most part. 96% said they'd still vote for him. A lot of swing states in Montana where, uh, where they were recording this, there's going to be a special election. 53% of the folks are still uh, with them, given a positive approval rating. Do you think, how do you think he has done in terms of serving the populist base that elected him so far, 125 days in? Well, I think that. Um and, and, and on a sort of there is there is sort of caveat which is it is still a bit early yes. in the sense that um, you you know we haven't had a chance to see whether at the federal level at least you know anything is going to get passed in terms of you know the big big ticket items. I I I, I for me there were I, I sort of picked two key areas that I thought were interesting. In, in, in Trump's campaign, and that I certainly think it's important that we all hold him to. And that's certainly one thing I want to be doing um, uh, in, in, in my show, which is that I think the number one reason that, that people actually put up with all the, um, you know, all, all the reasons why Trump would be totally unacceptable in any normal situation, you know, in terms of the, his behavior and, 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 and the way he handled the campaign and so on, was the number one thing, which is the economic economic issue, the, the issue of the economy and, and jobs and incomes and the fact that actually you've had, I mean, for me, one of the most, I, I'd say the single, if you had to make me pick one thing above all that told the story of the election and explained the election results, really staggering election result that no one would have predicted, you know, two years before, actually it was, a, it was a piece of data, it's one piece of data that was published Pretty late in the campaign, I think it was like either September or October before polling, before uh, uh, in, in, in 2016. And it was the income data for uh, America, and it's published by the Census Bureau. 
And I remember at the time there was a lot of, um, you know, it's seen as good news because I think for the first time since the Great Recession, incomes were up actually in every demographic group. I think the average was sort of 5% or something. It's so pretty good news. Yeah. President Obama said, this is great, we've turned the corner. You know, then that, that, that was true, it was good news. Incomes had gone up in the previous year. But the, the New York Times very helpfully published a, a very striking graphic that showed the long-term picture on incomes. And it showed that the, the median income in America, um, even including last year's increase, was still lower than in 1999. The median, that's half. The, like, so, and actually, when you looked at the chart, I've got it here, so I can actually carry it around because it's, it's such a brilliant depiction of what, 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 what's happened in the last couple of decades. If you look at the, each decile, the terms of 10% groups of income, the poorer you are, the more your income declined over that period. But the bottom 50% all saw that, of households all saw their incomes go down. And what does that really, it's not just the sort of personal impact of that, the, the economic impact. It's also what that did to people's faith in politics. Because actually, if you think about that time period, 99 to last year, basically, you'd had eight years of Bush and the Republicans, eight years of Obama and the Democrats, and at the end of all of that, half the country was poorer, and the rich just got richer. So that is not some sort of Bernie Sanders slogan, that's, that's the data, like, yeah. the rich got richer, half the country got poorer, regardless of who was in power. I think that's the reason that people, in the end, were, were, were willing to um, uh, support Trump, was that they believed that he had the better chance of getting the economy moving. So I think that's the number one thing he has to deliver. At no, the I moment, I would say... A frustration with the system, system, too. I mean, that the system well, I think goes back to, like, it, this is not working for me. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, exactly. And I think that that... That combined with his, you know, the, the, the sort of, again, the overlap between him and Bernie Sanders on that, you know, the rigged, the rigged system, the donors, the big donors, they're all puppets of the donors, Jeb Bush is a puppet, Hillary Clinton's a puppet, um, and, the, and the banks and all of that, um, I think really rang true to people because it reflected their actual experience. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter who you voted for, it's basically the same people that are in charge, and it's the same result for me. And we've had enough of it. And this guy, you know, however crazy he seems, might actually finally shake things up. Now, that, I think, is the number one thing that we need to hold him to account for. At the moment... Is shaking things up? Or no, the economic, shaking the, the economy. We're going to bring in the second money. thing. Okay. I, I, let's just sort of you know, get the two big points and then I'll come back to where I think we are on them. So the first is get the economy moving in a very practical way. Not some esoteric kind of, you know, more jobs and higher incomes. And the incomes Those are, are the metrics. The incomes part is really important. It's not just the jobs. And if you look at the, the economic data right now, it's actually a very con conflicting picture. In, 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 on some measures, unemployment is very low, and actually, you know, the companies are struggling to find workers, and that's having an impact on productivity. But in other parts of the country, you know, the actual participation rate is, is incredibly low. So there's huge, huge numbers of people just out of the workforce that don't show up. So it's like a mixed picture. You can look at the data any way you like, actually, mm -hmm. and tell anywhere, any story you want. But even regardless of, of, of whether you have a job or not, it's actually, you know, we, we've come to a point in, in, in the economy where that old certainty, that, that sense of economic security, that if I have a job, I'll basically be able to live on it, that's gone for, for so many people. They can't even, even if you have a job, you can't live on it. Right? And that collapse in economic security, never mind opportunity, never mind the opportunity to do better, 
and to climb the ladder. Just the basic security that I, I can live if I have a job. That's gone and for, for millions. And, and he, you know, that, that's the first thing he's got to do. I think he spoke to that. He seemed to understand that. He's got to do something about that. And then the second thing is, it is connected to that and, and, and our discussions around the, the whole system, which is the drain the swamp message. I think that is the other shake-up that people really responded to. The need to say, look, we're sick of all this. We're sick of the way that donors control the candidates, that the lobbyists are just sort of, you know, running policy. Literally, the, the, the rich and the influential and the insiders and the elite literally buy the outcomes that they want from the political system yeah. to favour them and everyone else is screwed. And that's why I think the drain the swamp Okay, it's a slogan you may or may not like. At one point, I think he said he didn't even like it. But just but that argument about dealing with the systemic corruption, I think, is again something he's got to deliver on. And um, I think if he doesn't, then the rage at the system will be even greater. Now, and so I think that um, that, that is, is he doing it? I think that. No, not not sufficient. I mean, there's no, there's no, you know, what are the big components of the economic revival? I think you need to see. I've always argued you need, you know, like some elements of the tax plan he's put forward, infrastructure spending. Where's that? What's happening with that? We haven't seen it, you know. So I think there's there's a there's a lot that needs to be done that that doesn't look like it's happening. But you know, to be fair, I think you should at least give wait till the end of this year before seeing. I mean, if he hasn't done those things by the end of this year, then that's a problem. Well, because then everybody's running for re-election. Exactly. Yeah, and also the impact is you're going to feel the impact in, in people's real lives. Right. What do you, do you get the sense that, if, so you have that rage out there, and that's what, what drove some of these votes. If these things aren't delivered, where do those voters go? Do they stay at home? Do they just unplug from the system? Do they go somewhere else? Do you have any, where do you feel that that's going if, if these promises are not delivered? Well, I think that um, I think that what's really important is that we don't think about populism just as something that is not the same as, as, as Trump. I mean, Bernie Sanders is a populist. Right. Um, Elizabeth Warren is a populist. Um, th there are different types of. Sure. That's why I think what really matters is the agenda. What 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 is the agenda? But what I would describe as positive populism. And that's what I think, and, and, and that can be advanced by, by, by people at all levels of government, um, people running for office, in all parties, actually. You don't, it doesn't, it's, it's, it doesn't, it shouldn't just be dependent on one person in, in one office. That agenda of positive populism is, I think, what we need to develop so that people understand it and we get some kind of agreement around some of the policy changes that we need to improve people's lives. You were also uh, in favor of Brexit. You parted with ways with your former boss. Um, how, what can we learn from that in this country, I think? Is it analogous in any way? And um, what can we learn the, from the aftermath of it? You know, it's not that far ahead in terms of uh, real time, ahead of what hap what's happening here. What can we learn from it? And and, and is it analogous in any way? I think there's a, there's a real connection. Um, again, this is something that I... I is pretty much a theme in, in my book, which is this um, 
By the way, I'm counting that's three plugs. For the I'm book, sorry, so well, you know, okay. you take it out. You can edit, edit. <laughs> no, we leave everything in. We leave everything. No, but you know, like, it's not, in a way, it's not surprising. <laughs> it. You know, like I, I, uh, you know, I, I did actually. I, by the way, I didn't even want to write the damn book. Like you didn't. Well, it was like 300 pages, so that was not my idea. It was very dead. It's very good. Yeah, it was a publisher in the UK who suggested it. No, I don't want to write it, but I can't be bothered. And then, and then I thought about it, and and actually thought, you know what, I would like to. Now, my point was going to be, you know, in a way. The whole, I should be talking about it because it, the idea of it was if I took the trouble to sort of sit down and think about right. what, you know, through all my experience in business and in politics and in government, yeah. you know, what do I think needs to happen? What are the problems and what are the solutions? So, in, in a way, it does, it does reflect, you know, my thinking on, on a lot of things. I think that, um, the, and one of the themes is that, and this is broader than just the economy, but just right. generally, over the last uh, few decades, and just again, under all types of government, of all political persuasions, what you've seen is everything, and I use that, I, I know that that's a, that can sound a bit sweeping, but I really mean it pretty much. Everything has just got too big and bureaucratic and centralised, and and you see it in the economy, with the, what it really is is a concentration of power. You've seen power concentrated in the economy, where companies have just got bigger and bigger and they've emerged and they've grown. You have these sort of giant global corporations that control huge chunks of their marketplaces and they're fundamentally uncompetitive in a, in a way that make those markets fundamentally uncompetitive. Where they're basically, they're rigged, they're stitched up, whatever, you know, populist language you want to use, you've seen this concentration of power in the economy. You've also seen it in government, where decisions that used to be made locally or, or in, a, in a devolved way, have just inexorably become more and more centralised. You've just seen the rise of centralised bureaucratic control. And of course the elites love that because they're the ones in control. And, and, and the connection with the Brexit vote was like, there's almost no better example of that than the EU. And I think for an American audience, I remember at the time of the Brexit this debate, and then especially in the aftermath, there was this, for understandable reasons, I think they, they, they kind of saw Brexit and that, that debate about the EU as kind of, well, what's that about? That's a bit weird. You know, they, the EU is, is just a kind of free trade. It's like sort of NAFTA. Right. And why would they do this thing? Oh, it's because they hate immigration. Or whatever. Actually, it's not that. And, you know, I had direct experience of this in working in, in, inside... And Downing Street in the UK, that the EU is really like a federal government. Of, it's, it's, that's the analogy. It's like the government. Because right. it's a common currency. And and not so much the currency. The UK is not in the current currency. Oh, that's no, right. Just, that's just right. the yeah. EU, right? Even if you're not in the Euro. Because more and more decisions over, over policy and regulatory matters. And, I mean, on some estimates, 70% of, of the rules and legislation that, that the British people have to abide by come from the EU. Now, here in America, everyone gets you know fed up and complains about the federal government, right? This is sort of a standard thing. But at least the president is elected. At least Congress is elected. The EU policy-making um, machinery is run by unelected bureaucrats. I know that we throw that term bureaucrats around. Right. That's what they are. They're, they're not elected. Now, there are parts of the EU set up where you have democratic accountability. There, yes, there's a European Parliament. That's true. Mm -hmm. And yes, the decision-making process includes 
um, a final say for what's known as the Council of Ministers, who are representatives of democratically elected governments who send their ministers there. That's all true, but the, the power of initiating policy, of, of driving things through, resides with the European Commission, which is not elected. And there's a fundamental breakdown there of, of democratic accountability. It's totally unacceptable. No American would ever, for one second, accept um, anything close to, to what the EU is doing. I'll give you a specific example. Um, one of the policy areas that I, I know we talked about earlier, family policy, and one of the things that I really uh, you know, thought was a priority and tried to make happen in the UK was implementing shared parental leave. So the good news in the UK compared to the situation here is that there is, there is a, you know, there's fam family leave is, 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 a, is allowed and permitted and there's, there's regulation around it. The bad news is it's totally distorted and means that all the birth, it's assumed that the, the, the entire burden of parenting goes with the mother, mm -hmm. basically. So you had, you had as you, the, the rules were basically set a social norm that you can take up to a year off your from your job um, and has, your job has to be kept open for a year if you're a mother and for a father it's two weeks. So this is ridiculous in the modern world where actually more and more households, the, the woman right. is earning more than the man. It's just ridiculous to expect that, and it's actually harmful for gender equality because it means that employers discriminate against women because they think they're going to go off, whereas men... Take them out of the career track. Right, yeah. exactly. So I thought it's really important to equalise that. Right. So my, 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 uh, the, the policy I was trying to implement with the agreement from you know, our, the, my political bosses was shared parental leave, um, trying to get to a level playing field of sort of six months each. That's what we were discussing. And, and before we even got anywhere with trying to get that get that through, it was basically the, the UK civil service said, well, you can't do that. Why? Because of an EU directive, which says that you can't reduce benefits that have already been given to... Uh, in, on, on, in and it's superseded. So you could increase the men to six months, but you couldn't reduce them. And so, and that, yes, because EU law beats UK law, right? And... So that's just one example, one smallish policy area. We had like 10 of those a week. And so the, it, the equivalent, just think of it for an American audience, is that, is that family leave policy, or, another, or employment law. I mean, look in the US, you have very different employment law in California to New York, to all over America. You know, that's something that the states decide. In the EU, it's, that, that's not, there's a common policy there. Now, the equivalent, is that employment law in California, where we're speaking, is determined by an unelected committee of 28 countries, in, including Bolivia and Peru, and you know, like who would accept that in America for one second? Right, right, it's just right. a joke. And so the argument about Brexit was was, I think people saw, you know, why you know why should they you know they, they, they saw one sort of bit of it and it's presented in a certain way. But to me, it was an argument about democracy. In the end, people ought to be able to vote in and out of office those who make the laws that they have to live under. It's just really simple. And that's impossible within the EU. That's And so uh, we'll be back to where we started. This is You're going to be talking about international issues as well on the show, correct? Yeah, I mean, where, where, when, when it's... When, look, when? to be completely honest, my, I think, you know, the, I, I, I think there's a hell of a lot of policy work that needs to be done in America. Right. I think we've got much deeper economic and social problems in America than the, than, the, than the political system has really recognized. And I think that I actually my... And also that in, t in terms of my background and expertise, it's really in domestic policy. So that what I really 
care about and know about really economic policy, schools, healthcare, welfare, family and parent, all that stuff. So I think that's going to be pretty much the focus. Can you give us a, a, a preview yet of the first show? No, <laughs> no. We just, we, no it's, 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 you know, I know it's, uh, it's, it's still on the whiteboard. Yeah, I think literally. Yeah, um, but the. Uh, so I, I, I can't really do that, but maybe but nearer the time. I know it sounds like, but we're actually speaking you know, more than a week away. Okay. Now, what what kind of what kind of uh, grief are you getting from your, you know, liberal San Francisco friends? Yeah, well, that, about, that, here you've got a show on Fox. <laughs> How can you do a show on Fox? Well, that happened long ago. You know, I'm yeah. well past that. Yes, yeah, so you're like well past that. that. What, that what do you say to them? What do you say when you're well, at the cocktail party? What are you doing? I do a show on Fox. No, it's, 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 the social humiliation has been sort of total for, for years. <laughs> actually, it was even worse when Rachel, when my wife. Um, worked at Uber, yes. uh, so she was head of <laughs> government relations and PR at Uber until yes. so recently. Until yes. recently, yes. so there was a time when you know she, she's at Uber and I'm at Fox. Like, we literally can't go out. Yeah, really. How do you, how do you leave the house in the exactly. Bay Area? Like exactly. <laughs> it was very tough. But I think that you know the, the, the way I, I you know, my friends know me well. They know you know that I'm I'm just not a, I'm I'm going to be myself. That, you know, that, and actually that's what's been really. Great, it's been a great experience for me um, when this slightly crazy idea of, of me uh, doing something I've never done before, hosting a never done a show, show before. No, yeah. um, I've barely done any media. I mean, I, in, in the UK, um, uh, you don't have that tradition that you do here of advisors. Um, no pundits. You don't. You don't go. You don't like, go like, to the like, MSNBC like, 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 when you're yeah. yeah. You became familiar faces. You right. know, even whilst working in the White House, that Kellyanne Conway. You know, that doesn't happen. In the UK, so not very experienced at it, but right from the when it was first discussed, um, the it was you know it's made very clear that they said, you know we're really interested in in you and what you have to say, and you're in the driving seat, and that's actually really been the case. It's yeah. been really a fantastic um, experience. So it's really sort of I'm bringing myself to Fox, right? Um, and you know the audience may like it, they may not like it, but that's what I'm going to be doing. And yeah. so and you'll be shooting in LA. Yes, it's going to be coming live on Sunday nights at 9 Eastern from the Bureau down in LA. Yeah. Right. Well, Steve, good luck to you, and uh, thanks for taking some time on the Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our guest today was Steve Hilton. And now we know what an actual Fox News host sounds like because no one from San Francisco watches Fox. Read more local coverage of politics and subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Joe Garofoli, and remember, no matter who you are or what you're doing, it's all political. You've been listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive producer is Fernando Diaz. Our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. And our producers are Peter Hartlaub, Brittany Schell, and Claire Varellis. It's All Political's theme music. We have theme music. It's called Cattle Call by Randy Clark's Crow Song. The Chronicle's Josh Zucker, who is our podcast's musical director, is on base. If you like what you heard, good news, there's more. Listen to Chronicle podcasts and get bonus content at sfchronicle.com backslash podcasts, plural, or subscribe to iTunes, Stitcher, or other streaming services. <laughs>